So how blue is the Tablet podcast? As as blue as, as blue you as you want to like it to be. As blue as you want to be. Yeah. Why well, you have some good well, material? You want to you know absolutely <laughs> Frankly, it hasn't been blue enough lately. This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Mark Oppenheimer, joined today by my co-hosts, Tablet, Deputy Editor Stephanie Butnick. Hello. Happy December. Happy December. It's snowing. There's snow on the ground here in New Haven. How about you guys in New York? I saw snow on the rooftops when I looked out my window, but by the time I got downstairs, there was like not a trace that There's it had ever snowed. There's black slush on the ground here in New York. I just gave up the game and said that I am calling in from my basement lair in New Haven. How's that cat? The cat, of course, is not showing her face anywhere. Oh my God, I forgot to scoop the litter this morning. Thank you for reminding me. Oh <laughs> and this, um, ladies and gentlemen, is why you should never have cats. I couldn't agree more. Uh, tablet senior writer Liel Leibowitz also here on the podcast as ever. A, a dog owner. This week, we bring you a conversation. We bring you many conversations. Uh, the first one will be with Simon Dunan and Jonathan Adler. They talk about their relationship and their work, including Simon's new book on the history of drag. Also, a conversation with Steve Shragis, the founder and director of One Day University, which has been a sponsor of the show. But Steve, in addition to having had the wisdom to sponsor our show, has a really, really interesting story of working in educational circles, including the work that he used to do with Donald Trump the Learning Annex. So it's really a, a fun history there. Stick around for that. And finally, Stephanie spoke with Molly Ye, whose new Food Network special, Hanukkah Cooking Challenge, airs this week. So a really, really fun show. A lot more fun ahead for us because we are hitting the road yet again. As this show airs, I will be in the air on my way to Madison, Wisconsin, where I'm going to give a talk at the University of Wisconsin. So some of you hearing this, uh, you have time to come see me tonight. I'm super excited. That's with the Religious Studies Department at the University of Wisconsin. And Stephanie, you will also be somewhere Thursday evening, right? As you hear this, I will be on the bridges and the tunnels on the way to Port Washington on Long Island, my homeland. I'll be really, really excited. I'm going to be speaking at the Community Synagogue. So check that out. And I will be in Switzerland reporting a story about the historical burning of Jews. On a small nice. island next to Geneva. It's the original Burning Man. The Swiss invented it. Uh, if you think about the territory we're covering Thursday, the European past, where we got burned, uh, New York, which we fled to, and then Southern California, where we went when we really had a few shekels in our pocket and wanted to get some sun. It's like the whole, the sweep of Jewish history right, right there for the for the taking. But there's something very interesting that's happening that I've noticed since, you know, we've been on the road for a really long time and and a lot of that roading has consisted of Stephanie and I in planes, trains, cars and automobiles. And you know, I thought about it the other day. I think Stephanie and I are are sort of merging into one kind of like bizarre mega mecca host. I will say, I'm looking at Liel right now. He is drinking an iced matcha latte with a pink straw, which is from Chacha Matcha, my favorite place. Correct. He's wearing an avocado beanie, which is, I have that also. We got that in Cincinnati. <laughs> We're basically the same person. wearing a pink scarf and like yeah. a purple button down. I'm like, you literally are stealing my color I, palette. I am Stephanie. <laughs> and are you averaging out to one host who's about 5'11 or 6 feet? Yeah, exactly. And sleep. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not yeah. good for anyone. No. But I will say that Liel and I have sort of like a review going now where he'll like he'll say something at an event and I'll be like, you see what I have to deal with? Can you believe this guy? <laughs> We're like a vaudeville act on yeah. un unwittingly. would say something, I'd be like, the worst generation ever. Now let me tell you about Gen X. It's <laughs> so it like, works really well. 
our grandparents' generation had Mel Brooks and Carl Reiner, and we get you guys. Yes. That's basically what that's It's called what the it Pod of Pods. That review or some version of it, the Stephanie and me version, then goes to San Diego, where we will be the guest of the Leash Tag Foundation and be doing a Friday night Shabbat dinner. And then a live show. This is all at The Hive, which is their extraordinary co-working and community incubator space, which is adjacent to a, a Jewish farm. I can't wait to see this place. And the best thing is that we are going to the farm and we are importing with us a fellow New Yorker via Israel, Einat Edmoni, the amazing chef behind all the Taim falafel stands and Bella Busta and the Shook cookbook. And she is amazing and so funny and so smart. And we're going to talk to her about food and the things that you do on a farm. This is really a step, a step up for this podcast. We've replaced an Israeli who can eat with an Israeli who can actually <laughs> cook. We're going on up. She'll be playing the part of Liel only much better is mm-hmm. what we're saying. Absolutely. Liel rejoins us in Phoenix where Monday night we will be doing a live show. We have three great guests joining us in Phoenix at the Valley of the Sun JCC. Our first is a double header of two rabbis, Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz and Rabbi Pinchas Alush. And our Gentile of the Week is former Phoenix Suns coach Paul Westfall. He is in the basketball Hall of Fame, and he's sort of like a Phoenix icon. So we're really excited to be talking to them. From Switzerland to New York to San Diego to Phoenix, we have you covered. And Liel, you, if I may segue, will be covered in your newly custom-made J-Press shirt. I want to give one final shout-out to our partner, J-Press. Friends can still go to jpressonline.com and using the code UNORTHODOX15, get American-made, handcrafted, traditional men's clothing, which I wear, and now, which I have gotten Liel into wearing. And uh, are, are you happy to have made the switch, Liel? I am so happy, and for those of our listeners who will join us in Phoenix, you could behold my Oxford collar, which the lovely gentleman in the store advised that a a person of my noble proportions ought (laughs) ought to always wear. You're getting collar advice from the the, the haberdashers at J-Press. A little news of the Jews. University of Toronto Student Union apologizes for saying that kosher food is too pro-Israel. This story is a little bit... Crazy. So basically, as I gather it, um, the Hillel wanted some kosher food and the Graduate Student Union, which is like the, the student government for grad students, basically said they were reluctant to bring such a motion forward to the board of directors since Hillel is pro-Israel and right. that supporting it by giving them kosher food would go against the will of the membership. Then somebody pointed out to them that that's massively anti-Semitic to try right. to deny Jews their religiously approved food. And they said, sorry for that thing that we were talking about. They're like, we oppose it because anti-Zionism is not at all like anti-Semitism in our eyes. No latkes for you. It's weird because like that extrapolates to, okay, Hillel is pro-Israel. The, the idea that kosher food equals pro-Israel or kosher food equals Israel in any way is just so deeply unsettling. And the fact that Jewish students are so sort of like unprotected because like the wider student body just doesn't know anything, it feels like. And it's just like the hatefulness of someone can actually like seep through and affect daily life is really sad. Absolutely. And you can really see how short a leap it is from that to uh, you may not wear a yarmulke because a yarmulke is pro-Israel and is murdering Palestinians. Like any that any religious observance in the eyes of anti-Semites they will just find a reason to politicize it and say, you can. I mean, this was food. This was people wanting to not eat shellfish, you know? I mean, now fortunately, they can all transfer to McGill University, where a student leader was recently asked to resign from their... <laughs> oh, poor Jordan Wright, a second-year science student, um, sits on the uh, Student Society of McGill University's board of directors. She recently announced that she was going on a birthright trip, something available to any human being at this point who can plausibly claim to be like 132nd Jewish or more. 
And she was then um, asked to resign because they said she was taking money from a pro-Israel propaganda organization. So the two it should also be noted that there are two other university student body members who are not Jewish who are also going on the strip and who are not asked to resign. Actually, yep. I mean, the crazy thing is, first of all, the misreading of birthright. Like, yes, birthright has an agenda. It's not designed to, like, affect your student government votes and decisions once you get back. It's just a trip to Israel. I mean, it's really just, again, this is the same thing. This is obviously like Israel, but the idea that she's going to become like inf- like brainwashed into something, it's like we, we've, we've just, I, like here, I'm saying it, like we've gone nuts. And it's such a peek into the mind of the sort of ignorant semi-anti-Semite. So this is from the article from the Jewish Telegraphic Agency uh, on whom we rely so much. Quote, it is designed to influence one's opinion upon return argued Madeline Wilson, SSMU Vice President of University Affairs. Quote, there's an agenda behind that, and it's, again, being offered to somebody in their capacity as a student leader. Um, actually, Madeline, no. They are desperate to get any human being on the birthright trip that they can. It's not like they look for student council presidents and Hillel executive directors. I mean, literally, if you like- They're recruiting- say, <laughs> for the elders. I mean, the birthright trip that I was on was undergrads, grad students, ages 18 to 26. Now the age goes even higher. A bunch of really, really tall blonde Russians who claimed that they had one Jewish great grandparent, you know, Liam O'Callaghan O'Flaherty, whose mother's mother's father's sister was Jewish. It was like the idea that they're looking for like the Jewish thought leaders and influencers to get them to Israel so they can come back and be like Manchurian candidate sleeper agents is such a misreading of of birthright. I like that we're like, guys, they let anyone like we're like quibbling with the the specifications of the birthright application. I gotta tell you though, I, I'm digging this new stage. At least they're being honest. Like, you know, a couple of years ago I feel like they still were trying to kind of mask their hatred and it's sort of like, well, no, the thing that we oppose are just the specific policies of the state of Israel. We don't hate Jews. And I was like, you know what? Ah, fuck it. We hate Jews. Right. It just takes takes too long. We just don't like you. (laughs) Basically, another way to say what Liel just said is we're all Belgian now. Uh, Liel, (laughs) do you want to – we have two stories from Belgium this week. You are, of course, our our Brussels correspondent. Uh, Do you want to take us into the the beating heart of Belgium? I am, of course, our our Brussels sprout, uh, if you will. (laughs) And so in Belgium, child rape capital of the world, two fascinating stories. Again, it is the gift that keeps on giving. The first – that uh, charges were dropped against Belgian soccer fans who sang about, what did they sing about? Go team? We like soccer? No, they sang about burning Jews. The decision follows a string of incidents, the JTA reports, in which Belgian authorities were seen to be lax on anti-Semitic hate speech. Some of the songs that they sang, ready for this? My father was in the commandos. My mother was in the SS. Together they burn Jews, because Jews burn the best. I feel like we've heard this song before. This is like beat poetry, right? My father was in the commandos. My mother was in the SS. Together they burn Jews, because Jews burn the best. This is so weird. I just like, why are people obsessed with burning Jews? It just freaks me out. Because they are filthy anti-Semites in this irredeemable shithole of a country. But that is not all. Also in uh, in Belgium a town that is famous, at least in this podcast, for having 
ridiculously crazy anti-Semitic floats in this parade. And we're not talking like subtle stuff. We're talking like 12 foot long noses, you know, puppets throwing, you know, money in the air. A Belgian town that has sparked outrage for featuring an anti-Semitic float, reports the Jerusalem Post, in its renowned carnival has decided to renounce their UN cultural heritage status after dealing with the accusations that they were anti-Semitic. In other words, the town of Alst, which had its carnival added to UNESCO's representative list of the intangible cultural heritage of humanity in 2010, which shows you just how low the bar truly is, decided to give up its special status as a United Nations protected cultural site just so it wouldn't have to stop being crazy anti-Semitic. That's, I mean, that is commitment, said, I guess? Said, <laughs> said, said their representative. Fianisa anti-Semitic no racist. Also, those people who support this are acting in bad face. Eist will always remain the capital of mockery and satire. Yeah, I mean, this is depressing. To is them, that's humor. depressing this week? Do we have anything, Nat? Uh, well, we have the Louis C.K. item. You want to take us... Uh, you want to take us to Israel where... Yes. Uh, Speaking Louis of comedy and satire. Yes. Um... Wow. I thought we could like get away with never talking about Louis C.K. on this show, but it turns out we have to because Louis C.K. was in Israel at a comedy club outside Tel Aviv. And he said, and, and I am quoting him, I'd rather be in Auschwitz than New York City. I mean, now, not when it was open. Apparently, the audience was laughing and clapping. And the remark was basically about like the spotlight that's on him in New York City. I do not understand this joke. It is supremely unfunny to me. He'd rather be in Auschwitz now. Yeah. Well. I think what he was saying is New York's really bad for me because he's saying they don't have the tolerant sense of humor that you Israelis have. That that's his line. I mean, I I, I will say that on the fourth reading of it, I did laugh because I realized the the beat comes where he says, you know, I'd rather be in Auschwitz than New York City. I mean, now not when Auschwitz was actually open. Like it's just the sort of like he means he'd rather be hanging out in Oswiecim, Poland, than New York City. Oswiecim. Oswiecim. I always get that wrong. But here's but, the thing: I would say like. I don't know. I just think that's like a cheap shot and I get that people laugh, but it's like, dude, like, let, like, don't, what, now you have to like be talking about Auschwitz, just like go away for a little bit longer. I don't, but I, I think, I think it's his form of pandering to the crowd. It's like saying, you know, Shalom Tel Aviv, Auschwitz. I know it's, it's offensive. It's, it's his kind of like shout out to the local culture. You know, what's so interesting is that he's doing sold out shows in Slovakia and then he's doing some performances in Hungary. And he's doing Israel. So apparently he's still big in Europe. And there's no Jewish angle to this whatsoever, except that apparently Louis C.K.'s paternal grandfather was Jewish. It Do is we know that? Reported. Like, have we confirmed that? We don't that? know that. It's always reported. If you go on Google, they'll say that, like, his, his dad's dad was Jewish. His I have paternal no paternal grandfather idea. once masturbated in front of someone who was Jewish. <laughs> That's <laughs> what you mean? But you know what? I mean, so somebody here's great grandpa, like, will claim to have been at a bar mitzvah with Louis C.K.'s grandpa. If so... Yeah, you know, I need I us. need proof before I'm, be, I'm going to believe that. J. Crew, we're crowdsourcing this to you, 914-570-4869. But it look, was like Auschwitz wasn't so bad for my people. It's okay. <laughs> Just <laughs> Here's hang the out thing. There. I've got I, I've had a very weird journey with Louis C.K., which is I used to not be able to deal with him because everyone thought he was the greatest comic genius ever. And they'd be like, oh, you have to watch the early episodes of his first show. No, actually, his like season four of his second show. No, the third stand-up special. And I was like, whatever, he's mildly funny, but I actually like my jokes obvious and funny and not sort of like weird and subtle and arty and all that stuff. And so I wasn't into him then. Then it turns out that he's like pervy Pervenheimer. And so obviously I'm not into him now. And I've just had, I've had a journey of like wishing that he just weren't such a factor in the culture. I have a question. Are the pervy Pervenheimers related at all to the Oppenheimers, like back in the old country? 
No, they're actually they're German Lutherans. Um, <laughs> I, th- not I thought they were Jews. they were one one of your uh, grandfather's seven wives were the Pervenheimers. <laughs> no, only one of his six wives was Jewish at Aliel. He had one Jewish wife, my grandmother, and five Gentile wives. So and put, neither of them was a Pervenheimer. Put that in your J Press Oxford collar and and button it. Okay. <laughs> uh, the newest Jewish encyclopedia. Let's talk about it. People should have a copy or seven for. Hanukkah. Do we agree? They are great gifts. And the fun thing is that we've been on the road and people are getting like a book for their son, a book for their daughter, a book for their mother-in-law. And it's like actually the perfect gift because it's a, because people will learn about Hanukkah in it and that it's actually not the Jewish Christmas and that it's like not that important. But um, I love the idea of giving a Jewish gift for Hanukkah instead of like the latest Hot Wheels uh, present. And it's really, really fun. It's sparkly and shiny and it makes a great coffee table book. It'll fit in your son-in-law's Christmas stocking as well. Hey, if people want to see us live, we are everywhere. Go to tabletmag.com slash unorthodox live. We tend to have our book available for sale wherever you will find us. If you want to read along with our show, some people have reached out and said, hey, could you tell us who the authors coming up on the show are? Maybe I'll get their book and, you know, read ahead. So the interview means a little more to me. Absolutely. An upcoming episode, for example, will feature Sarah Hurwitz, who is the author of Here All Along, Finding Meaning, Spirituality, and a Deeper Connection to Life in Judaism after finally choosing to look there. Get the book and listen for her on an upcoming episode soon. We sat down with power couple Simon Dunin and Jonathan Adler. Author and fashionista Dunin returns to the show to discuss his new book, Drag, The Complete Story. Jonathan Adler is the potter, designer, and author behind the Jonathan Adler home decor empire. This conversation was really, really interesting, and we're really excited for you to listen. We are here with Simon Dunin, who returns for his third Gentile of the Week visit to tell us about his newest book, Drag, The Complete Story. We also figured it was about time we invited his Jewish husband, the eponymous designer Jonathan Adler, on the show as well. Welcome to you both. Welcome, gentlemen. Hola. Hi. Hola. Shalom, if you will. Shalom, yes. Shimon Dunin. <laughs> Jonathan Adler. Yoni, I'm sorry we haven't had you on the show before. It's kind of awkward, actually, that we've had Simon now three times. Uh, it's a little ox, but, you know, I figure it's time to, it's a new year. Yes. Time to sort of build bridges, put the past behind us, and to take be honest, the pieces. To looking at the two of you, I'm going to go ahead and guess that Shimon Dunin here is the one who who brings uh, a lot of the Yiddishkeit into the relationship. Am I correct? Yes. He actually is like uses Yiddish all the time because he's been a garmento for millennia. <laughs> he's very, very old. So he's been around forever. And I actually thought he was Jewish forever. And we finally got his DNA done. And I was like, oh, he's at least 50%. I thought he was going to be like 50% Jewish. Like maybe, you know, 20% Gentile and 30% Chihuahua. Because he's very... <laughs> Cut to zero Jew. Because you dress him in little tartan outfits and put a leash on him? He's not the tallest person in America, but... I'm so glad you've elected to join us uh, on one of my third appearance on the tablet, Johnny. Great to have you. (laughs) So the punchline being you got his DNA done and nada, zilch? Zero Jewish, but like 8% Chihuahua. More than Elizabeth Warren is Native American. American. And and you, Jonathan, did you have your DNA done? I haven't had it done. And I'll tell you, I'm like... Very invested in the idea that I am 100%, and I don't really want to like right. risk it. I would, it. I would find it very um, unmooring. My dad was excited to find out he was 1% Neanderthal. 
<laughs> Which is something they tell you, and I don't know what it means. I'm 97.1% Ashkenazi. If that wasn't obvious by looking at me, but I'm 1% North African, which Amazing. I have taken, I've really embraced, <laughs> I think. Yeah. So is that just Sephardic? Do you yes, reckon? definitely. Okay. Yeah. It's like Libyan something, you know. Mm. It's not as cool as it sounds. Who but... do you think was the racy ancestor? Honestly, I have no idea. I think it was on my mom's side. Yeah, I think so too. I think it was on one of those crazy Roth houses. I've met your mom, and she seems like she would be. She's got that one. Oh, yeah. from a. <laughs> mm-hmm. A while back, myheritage.com gave us some free tests, and we were going to do a show in which we did a reveal. But it was so boring. Surprise, surprise! <laughs> but I was literally a hundred percent Ashkenazi. Right. Stephanie Oppenheimer, Leibowitz, and Butnik reveal everything. <laughs> so before we get to you, Simon, to your new book, I want to give Jonathan, our Jewish guest some attention. Let's start from the beginning. Let's <laughs> talk about your bar mitzvah. Oh, man. Because uh, it had a great theme. Well, actually, that you're, this is kind of a cruel moment. because oh, sorry. No, my bar mitzvah didn't have a great theme. So thank you, Stephanie, for reminding me. I And this is an important lesson that everyone can take from this. Year before my bar mitzvah, I went to Maury Strauss's bar mitzvah. Maury was the son of a podiatrist, and they had a pool shaped like a foot. And <laughs> So yeah, they were living. It was the seventies. They were in Southern at, New Jersey. I'm in Southern, ask where. I love it. I'm in like a it. crappy farm town in Southern New Jersey, but the Strausses were bringing it. And Maury's bar mitzvah was El Al themed. Everyone was in like purple. The, the waitresses were dressed like stewardesses. Cut to my the bar orthodox guys that refused to sit next to women. Yeah, it Everyone was like shouting. They're was, clapping when the bar mitzvah ends. See, growing up in Waspland in Western Massachusetts, I I fantasized that in like Jersey there were foot shaped pools and LL themed bar mitzvahs and there, there yes. were well not in my, my jersey anyway it's a different longer jersey. story okay. different jersey but whatever Maury Strauss was living but and the point I, is you were on the cusp I was on the cusp of preppy and I sort of saw preppy cresting and you know I always like to think that I can truffle out a future trend and so I elected to do a more like preppy themed bar mitzvah so it was very very understated and looking back I really regret it and I think one should always like embrace whatever the cultural moment is and take it to 11. Like anybody who said disco sucks just missed out on a great party. And I am the person who said disco sucks. But it sort of regret. does portend your, the rest of your life, right? This idea of having like a very understated bar mitzvah in this like aspirational preppy aesthetic is kind of hilarious because then you basically like push back against that to the other extreme well, I feel in like, your work. Yeah, I feel like in order to be noticed, you need to like really go for it and be outré. But before we leave the bar mitzvah behind, as something of an amateur scholar of preptum, I have to ask, how did you do it? What were the prep signifiers? Were the t-shirts you were handing out Madras t-shirt? No t-shirts. It felt more like a high goy kind of party. I wore like a Brooks Brothers suit. Nice. It was just, it was sedate and understated. So there was nothing even, it didn't even say bar mitzvah except for my um, really croaky Haftorah, which ruined the Haftorah you year. You had a country club party is what yes. you did with a little Haftorah. With a little Haftorah. As the toast, basically. Totes. Yeah. I love that. I would have enjoyed that party I also feel tremendously. like pe- not everyone knew that that was the theme, maybe. And that's even the better part. Yeah, it was unthemed. The theme was Judaism, as we said. Yeah. <laughs> I think you left out the really good bit, which is the backstory of your great-grandparents coming to this town as egg farmers not that long ago. They were the Jersey egg farmer people? Yeah. Because like, that's a thing. There was the farming Jews that the settlement groups dispersed. Those are my peoples. Wow. So I grew up in a crappy farm Stop town. Stop calling it crappy. I grew up in a farm town <laughs> <laughs> in southern New Jersey, and my great-grandparents... Um, moved there. My great-grandfather built a little tiny shul in the middle of a field that's still there, and it's called the Garten Road Synagogue. 
Um, your listeners should look it up. It's really incredible. It's where I used to go to high holiday services. It's still there. It's tiny. It's like one room. A one room shul house. As it's it a one room shul house in, in a field. And it's really incredible. And then my grandfather grew up on the farm, became a lawyer and a judge. And my dad then grew up there and became a lawyer and sort of was like an urbane sophisticate trapped in a tiny farm town. And that's where I grew up. It was very, and my mom was like living in New York, working at Vogue when they met. And he sort of like kidnapped her and like took her down to the farm. And this is very Molly Yeh. Yeah. Right? This is it's like very, very Green Acres. Right now. <laughs> but, oh, really? But, but your people weren't the kind of people who would build kind of like flashy, big pools shaped like Foot pools. feet. I Those are not wish. I right. fucking <laughs> wish. But they did have a so glamorous house, Johnny. It was a glamorous house, but all I ever wanted was for them to be more like business Jews. Unfortunately, they were like art and intellectual Jews. Oh, yeah. they were they were book Jews and you wanted to be money That's Jew. what I wanted to ask. So, so it seems to me like you're stuck between a rock and a hard place, right? You're like, there's the flashy Jews that make sense because they're fun and out there and out there. And then there are the Goish farmers who are like, you know, they have their thing going. And, and here you are in the middle occupying what? Occupying a very marginalized space. Right. I very much relate to colonial people because I feel like I had a colonial childhood. We always felt sort of superior to the natives, but completely marginalized right. from the natives. So that was kind of my thing. You know my family. Shrimp, yes. what do you think? Do you think, where do you think they fall on the spectrum of intellectual business? Well, I think the the farming thing and then the, uh, the the sort of intellectual thing where your dad went to the University of Chicago, blah, blah, blah. They're a sort of groovy combination of down-to-earth and highbrow. Mm. It's a good combo. How do you guys meet? We can't really talk about that. Um, no, I'm well, <laughs> often gay people meet under very unusual circumstances. <laughs> but ours was just a setup from a Yenta called Gerard, who's South African, and he set us up on a date. Amen to Gerard. God I bless know. Gerard. To bring it back to the issue of drag, it seems to me like the prep was a little bit of a, of a kind of a drag act, right? It was like dressing up as some kind of culture, trying to kind of make it up flashier and more colorful than it is that you didn't truly occupy just to kind of well, colonize it? Yeah, I reckon it is. I mean, you know, I think as Sliman will attest, drag has many meanings. Yeah, I think one, you know, in the quest for identity, you probably have to try on a few different types of drag. And then finally, 50 years later, I landed on my true drag, white jeans and Tom Brown sweater. That's <laughs> Did you find that it was in middle age that you figured out what your look was? I think so. Yeah. 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 I think that happens to most people. I mean, that's how it should happen. Right. You should w wear all kinds of crazy stuff and experiment and be a complete loony and be very free about what you wear. And then, yeah, you end up just organically honing your look down. Then you end up with your look. So you're Simone de Beauvoir. You've got a turban and a turtleneck. You've got your look. Some espadrilles. But then there are those remarkable people who seem to know <laughs> who they are fashion-wise, style-wise, at age nine, and they just they nailed it and stay that way. Usually they'll nail themselves as like an experimenter, you know, uh, somebody who's uh, very rigid and conservative. You know, they'll identify themselves in a broader way, but in terms of the actual look itself, it... I think it comes together by the time you're middle age. Or but someone if it like doesn't... me who was born with no style and you understand that at a very early age and you're like, yeah, just just wear whatever clothes you could find. I think you're pulling it together. Yeah, and look I at like that it. little jaunty scarf. I the mean, beard. you're just gone for it. Let's talk about what you're wearing, Leo, actually. You are wearing a flannel shirt, <laughs> a 
green vest. It's like a barber jacket with the sleeves cut off. Yeah, like a little bit of like a finance bro vest. I'm wearing four of the six things I own. And like maybe like a kafia-esque scarf. It is kafia-esque. Yeah, I mean. It's adjacent. Yeah. We're not going to lie. Bottom P-Town. So yeah, very I was going to say, all you really need is the Subaru and the two golden retrievers. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very, very close. Yeah, actually, that's true. And which brings us to your beard, which is full and robust. Yeah. Subaru-ish. Yeah. Neglect. um, but the most Sheer important thing, your crown and glory is your mane. You have you're blessed with fantastic hair, Thank mazel tov. Mm-hmm. See, this is this is a topic that Mark and I uh, are a little bit competitive about. We each have. I honor your hair. I honor your hair, and you honor mine. And I honor yours. Namaste, namaste. I honor the divinity I'm in so you. I'm so glad we're doing this. You are the divinity in me. We really need you here in order to have these conversations that we need to have. Because right. without actually, you, we would never have. I actually know who has better hair, and I'm just. I'll tell you after, is it after the show off air. No. Oh, no, Stephanie's is magical. Well, yeah, and she's, it's, it's, I'm talking about among the dudes. Um, well, you I know the answer. Off, off air later. Off air. Before we get to drag and, and Sliman, which I like that. that. Thank you for that. Is that by your the Halloween way. name? <laughs> that's, that's October. Schlimon. Schlivovitz. So while you're there in chicken farming land, New Jersey, uh, now we understand your mother worked at Vogue. So there was some, right? Is that what you Yeah, it was very Green Acres. It was very Green Acres. So when did you first begin thinking you wanted to be a designer? And what were the first things that influenced you visually? So I went to this hippy-dippy summer camp called Apple Farm in southern New Jersey still. We're still moored in southern New Jersey. What exit are we talking here? And is it Turnpike or Parkway? Well, it's funny you should ask. It's 45 minutes from the nearest highway. Wow. So exit two, <laughs> I'm exit two, but that was like right. whew, time to like make the journey to exit right. two to start the, you know, to start the next leg of the journey. So I am like isolated AF. Anyway, go to summer camp, try pottery because the pottery counselor was super hot, touch clay, and it was on. Hmm. It was just on. So I was like 12 and then knew I wanted to be a potter, which is ridiculous. Was it on tactilely? Like you, it was the feel of the clay or, or what you could make with it or? I have no idea. It was just mysterious. It was just like I tried it and I became obsessed and like a pottery nerd throughout my life. And always, I kind of have two authentic identities. On the one hand, I am very much like a lesbian Joni Mitchell, Birkenstock, pot, like, you know, you, Liel, you understand. Yeah. I'm a big lesbian. Northern Joni Israel, Mitchell. kibbutznik, yeah, you know, kibbutznik. vegetarian. Yeah, yeah, authentic, like Joni Mitchell's playing, I'm wearing Birkenstocks. And then I'm authentically a Jap. And those are two very challenging identities to integrate. Yeah. That's right? like when I wear clogs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, 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 like questions everything about my identity, but challenges it in a good when way. When you drop yeah. a kid off at summer camp, though, you do see the people who like down in the city, The mo- she's a Jap, but she's driving her daughter up to the country for, for summer camp. She's taken out the woven things. Yeah. You know? But they don't, that, it's not true for them. For so you, when it's does, true. So when does the sensibility start getting together? Well, First of all, I am the Jonathan Adler sensibility. Well, I am gay. Uh, so, cut to I'm a pottery nerd, trapped at home in southern New Jersey, and I am spending my entire high school years smoking pot in my studio in the basement of our house, listening to Grace Jones, dreaming of coming to New York. So, I kind of there was like all the strains were percolating. So, for someone who doesn't have a colorful jar in their kitchen that says like uppers or like. <laughs> Gluten, like, can you give us a sense of what it is that you make today? And if someone's walked by a Jonathan Adler store, what they might see in there? I make a range of stuff for the home, ranging from chic and classique furniture that is, I think, just kind of modern, um, to accessories that are cheeky and chic. Um, 
And it's kind of everything for the home. Slime, shrimp, tell me. Well, I think you probably don't see it so objectively. But when I walk by your store, I see like a couch that's shaped like a cloud. And on it is a beaded pillow that might have a huge pair of lips on it. So it's like kind of high voltage glamour. Yeah. Can you go in there and get more straightforward decorative things that are beautiful? Yes. But your your real comfort zone is like you just did that glam rock. Tutankhamun beaded uh, needlepoint pillow. That's so insane. I don't even know what part of your brain that came out of. These huge lucite pills. It's like Valley of the Dolls but under then I- our TV. So there's these, that you have beautiful classic American glamour. Yes. But that, I do a lot of stuff though, that's like very crafty and kind of, I'm obsessed with reform Jewish temples. <laughs> like I've always, I grew, I grew up going to a conservative one. And I always saw. You mean the old classic pre-war, the classic reform that were kind of Moorish, like Emmanuel on Fifth Avenue no, reform? No, or no, you no, mean no. post-war, I mean, fake, post- bad Frank Lloyd Wright knockoff? Well, now hold up. Don't be slagging off the reform temple community. <laughs> I mean the like the reform, post-war reform, uh, like sort of organic, modern, sacred uh-huh. architecture uh-huh. that has a very particular vocabulary. It's kind of brutalist. Yeah, it's like um, brutalist. A lot of the pews are really hard on your ass, like those like well, slabby yeah. type it's pews. It's really avant-garde architecture. And they would get like an artist like Louise Nevelson to do the Beamer. And, you know, it, it was very daring and <laughs> crazy. Nothing like that was happening in um, my faith. And it's like the geometric pews type of thing and like the big stained glass, yeah, like modern. Yeah, with a mix of sort of organic, like it's sort of that organic thing. It's like Corbusier's Ronchamp taken to a lunatic conclusion. And um, And the the Hebrew typeface that they do the Ten Commandments in behind the ark is always something you can't tell what it is. Exactly. You sort of like squint and you're like, oh, that's some sort of weird, modern Hebrew. Yes, and I actually do. I have a mezuzah that's inspired by that movement where it's like you can barely read whatever the hell that letter is anyway, but it's there. But I mean, the interesting thing about your Judaica specifically, and I have a lot of it, is like the peacock menorah. You almost wouldn't know it was a menorah. You could leave it out all year round. The Seder plate, if you didn't know what you were looking for, you kind of. it It could pass unless you dressed yes, it up with exactly. some ferocity. I yeah. love that. Um, that peacock menorah, if I may say it, is a triumph. It's really one of my better pieces. It is just pared down to like the most sort of elemental nature of itself. And it just kind of looks like it's supposed to be that way. Like I kind of uncovered it. Proud of that. Hmm. Right. See, th- this is the thing. It's it's fun. And I-, I cannot, again, stress enough my complete inadequacy in, in this term. But there's a reason why even before we you know had Simon on the show, it, you're the only designer who I could name by name because I would walk into a store and understand exactly what was going on because there was an actual personality there that didn't seem like it was trying to kind of instruct me to do something so I could look cooler or be part of some clique. It was just like, hey, man, we're just we're just having fun with this thing. And we own the Pigock Menorah. And it's just being Jewish in this way that's like great. Is the blue one? Nice. Fun. I got to get yeah. this menorah. It's a really good yeah. menorah. I don't I'm make it lone. anymore. It's, it's oh. authentically Jewish. It's it's clearly interested in the thing that it's here to celebrate. It's not here like, oh, we have to do a menorah, which is so dumb and embarrassing. Let us dress it up as something. It's like, no, man, we actually celebrate this design element because it's fun. Totes. Well, I think Slyman and I share one of the, I think, our bonds is that even though we both are, you know, whatever the hell we are, designers, artists, writers, (laughs) whatever, we're 
neither of us is snobby at all. We're very focused on being communicative. And we're both small town girls, you know, who <laughs> clawed our way to the middle or the lower, the lower third. Um, In the high stakes world of potting and window dressing. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, Simon, so, you were on our second episode. Um, so you're sort of like a known quantity to the J crew, which is what we call our listeners. Um, very preppy. So tell us about Drag the Complete Story, which is this real comprehensive survey of drag culture from, you know, ancient civilizations to like RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, the publisher, Lawrence King, he's a fabulous guy. He said to me, um, oh, you should do a history of drag. And this is right after I did my football book. Right, all which about you were last on before. Yeah. yeah. And so um, I thought about it and I thought, why drag? Why now? By the way, I love it. He's like, you know, you wrote about football. Enough with the gay stuff. Now write about drags. I <laughs> really want to write about You man it up, really bro. It felt like that. I'm telling you, out of the locker room into the Illusions Lounge <laughs> on RuPaul's Drag Race, it didn't feel like that big a leap. But anyway, and I thought, well, what are the reasons to do a book on drag now? And then I sort of came up with four reasons why drag, why now? Would you like to hear them? No. We have a president okay. with a weird orange wig who yeah. has like five people dress him in the morning? Bingo. Well, there is. That's one of my reasons. The politicization of drag, the Trump bump. We live in an era where Meryl Streep is dragging up as Donald Trump. A lot of drag queens now have become very politicized. So there's a new – I have a chapter on radical drag, and, and that's the end of the book because that is a period we're living in now where drag has become political, radical, satire is back – Melissa McCarthy as Sean Spicer, et cetera, et cetera. Then there's the gender revolution that we're living in the middle of. Um, this new gender fluidity, pronouns, sort of deconstruction of gender, androgyny, you know, everywhere you look. And much of it has a dotted line to drag. You know, there are straight women such as Stephanie who now <laughs> identify as drag queens. There are young kids to be clear, Stephanie herself doesn't identify but as a I drag could. queen. But you could. You could. It wouldn't be unusual. Straight women such as you yes. do. That's right. What are the other reasons? As if those weren't enough. <laughs> um, oh, RuPaul's Drag Race. RuPaul's Drag Race, dominant cultural phenomenon, which is sort of propelling these other things forward, but also part of these, why, why this is such a big drag moment. And Lawrence said to me, you know, there currently isn't, uh, an overview, a historical overview of drag. There's books about the history of drag in the theater, blah, blah, blah. So do you want to give it a go? So I um, took off my football cleats and <laughs> minced into the Illusions Lounge and just got on with it. And it was a fun, fun book to do. It was great. It's funny because RuPaul's Drag Race is so unbelievably popular. There are a lot of young people today who think drag is completely mainstream and that it isn't actually this countercultural phenomenon that had to work against the mainstream for so long. Well, that is sort of how I came at drag because our post-war England we were literally drowning in drag. Drag wasn't particularly marginal. It was on the TV every day. All the straight comedians. Right, no self-respecting male British comic right. wouldn't do drag. Monty right. Python. Right. They were always in drag. Nag drag, they usually did, where they were sort of played um, horrifying old mm. angry women. <laughs> very misogynist. Yeah. Comedy drag is, is unusual because it's historically been mostly straight men doing sort of very grotesque, <laughs> semi-misogynistic portraits of women. And then women got their own back for many millennia. Women impersonating men, satirizing male 
um, toxic masculinity. That was a huge thing at the turn of the century with Hetty King and all these drag kings made of absolute fortune and they were hugely famous and dominated the musical world back at the turn of the century. So it's tit for tat. And the, the history of the drag king is every bit as impressive, though, you know, honestly, they're not as dominant now. There's no drag king version of RuPaul's Drag Race. But, you know, maybe that's because men's clothes aren't so, I don't know. Do you think that riveting. the political moment, I have this big overall cultural question about this current political moment. A lot of stuff is becoming, you know, highly, highly sort of flammably political. And there's a part of me that really loves it because, hey, it's really fun to watch Melissa McCarthy do Sean Spicer and like really, you know, put these skills and these traditions to work for for this higher cause. But at the same time, I kind of worry that it, it will all just flame out and, and we would never be able to look at that particular art form without assigning to it some kind of political slash partisan meaning. Do, do you think about this? Is, have we reached kind of this cultural moment in which drag and, and a lot of other things with it, going from comedy to politics, kind of run a risk of, of really being too hot to handle? Of losing the fun? Yeah, exactly, of losing the fun. Only in the media, I think, regular people, people out in the world, aren't so embroiled in politics. They don't think about it all the time. They're like, oh, where's that wig you borrowed from me? I want it back. I want to do Dusty Springfield on Saturday <laughs> night. Like they're not, you know, it's definitely if you're a media person, as you guys are, I'm not critiquing, um, you get in this head where everything's this washing machine of politics. Then you go out in the world and people are just like, shit, what are we going to have for dinner, you know? But also drag queens have always been the most marginalized freaks in culture, like who seem, yeah, some of them are political, but I think a lot of people do drag because they are just, they have no choice but to do it and they're just sort of lunatics. So I think they're not that politicized. No, they're, um, you know, it's a dream. It's it's feeling, you know, feeling good about yourself because drag is incredibly empowering. Let's say, for example... Um, Johnny and I were like both undersized and say we went behind that screen and dragged up and it'd take about five hours. But when we came out, we'd be a good 18 inches taller. We'd have shoes on and an enormous wig. We'd be terrifying. We would have this new kind of power like a Medusa. You know, you wouldn't be, we'd be staring you down. We wanting submission from the other people in the room. There's something very much a power grab about drag for men and women, for drag kings too. There was a moment I remember when a good friend of mine who was very immersed in feminist theory was telling me that, oh, well, in the feminist, crit in, the, in the theoretical critical matrix of feminism, drag is very bad news. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, there's a, that it sort of takes femininity and takes women and puts them in service to a kind of grossly stereotyped male idea of what femininity looks like. And I was never particularly persuaded by this, but do people worry about that or was that just in 1997? There's uh, many theories about drag and they all kind of exist concurrently. There's another theory from the 90s that men are infatuated with the idea of dressing as a woman because women over history have retained ownership of the visual realm. So, for example, you're in a restaurant, Linda Evangelista, Claudia Schiffer walk in, the whole room stops and they can basically ask for what they want. Everyone will buy them drinks. They don't have to be accountable for anything. They just show up. 
and they have this unbelievable power over people. So, you know, that's why the top models of women, they're paid a lot more than men. Porn, same thing, the women make more money. So women have retained power over this visual realm. Now many women question that. Do we want that kind of power? Blah, 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 blah. But there are these theories that certain types of drag is done for men do it to grab some of that, to be gazed at and to be not accountable for anything, just to be gorgeous and show up and be worshipped. And like that's sort of a lot of men who quote unquote cross-dress describe that feeling of, um, oh, finally I can relax. I put on a frock and I relax because... I just have to be there. I'm not accountable for anything, which is, again, sort of misogynist if you look at what's underpinning that. But I think that a lot of men describe the exhilaration of that moment of, and the, what's jealous of it, seeing it, that women have that. Mar There's no male Marilyn Monroe's or Gene Harlow's or the golden age of Hollywood was about that. Well, there's Gene Hackman that you really <laughs> look at. Standing over a subway grate. I, I want to go over... <laughs> I want to go Gene back. Autry. That's oh lordy. I want to go back for two seconds to the political moment. I think about the two of you in your respective fields as as kind of the, you know the high priests of joy. You know whatever it is that you do, it really exudes the <laughs> sense of just whatever it is fun <laughs> and and you know just like real kind of just like enjoyment of of life. And we live in this, no matter what you think or where you are politically, we live in this terrible, grim political moment where everyone is hysterical and stressed out and everything is hashtag resistance and cancel culture. How do you personally deal with that? How do you create bro, in this environment? Bro, Shall I um, go first or do you want to go? I'm going to kick this one off because um, it is a minefield, OBS, and I try, in my professional life, I try to actually stay quite apolitical because... I make stuff. I want to sell stuff. It's a nonpartisan endeavor. And, you know, I try just to make my stuff extremely personal, um, which is important. But in terms of my own, it's funny when you say, like, I'm a, a joy person because I'm actually, like most people, the exact opposite of what I appear. Oh, of course. And yeah. Paul Johnson, the historian, wrote this book called Intellectuals about how sort of most intellectuals throughout history have been the exact opposite of what they appear, like Rousseau, who was all about the innate greatness of humanity fathered like 85 illegitimate children who he left to die in an orphanage. <laughs> or Karl Marx had a slave his entire life. So I think about that all the time because, you know, my, I, in as much as I have a persona, it is sort of joyful. But the truth is, Simon calls me Ariana Kafka <laughs> because I am half Ariana Grande. Like, you know, to sort of come up with creative ideas, one has to be like sort of a buoyant pop princess. But to make them real, you need to torture them into their best selves. And that's where I'm, I'm kind of a little more Franz Kafka. Like I'm kind of more of a brooding, depressive intellectual who takes these, my Ariana Grande ideas and makes them real with a lot of so hard work and analysis. So this moment is gold for you then. It's the well, best of all possible times. The political part of it? Just, just a, the whole kind of mess. I'm like extraordinarily engaged with culture, but in terms of my oeuvre, um, I try to be personal, insular, and kind of just like follow my path and try to, it's really hard. And there's a lot of mishigas. Like for instance, I made this. Did Simon teach you that word, by the way? Yeah, he did. Thanks, shrimp. Um, no, I'll tell you a really stupid story. I make needlepoint pillows. You know, I make gifts. Um, and so we were sitting around in our office one day and somebody said, oh, we need like a $98 price point, like novelty needlepoint pillow. I was like, great. We'll do personality pillows. We'll do like honest lawyer 
um, corporate hippie. Just like my grandfather used to call my grandmother the boss lady, so we did boss lady. And so we did all these pillows that were great. They were a huge hit. And then I came into my office one day, and everyone was having these, like, closed-door meetings, and they were like, um, we need to talk about the boss lady situation. And I was like, what? And they said, well, all these pillows, you know, if you're saying corporate hippie, it's an oxymoron. If you say honest banker, it's an oxymoron. And there's an online fatwa against us because of the boss lady pillow, because you're saying that boss, <laughs> that ladies can't be bosses. And I was like, that is the single stupidest thing I've ever heard <laughs> in a long time. But w- here's the interesting bit about it that is germane. So for me, I'm just like, that's ridiculous. Like, thank you, next. But for the kids who work for me, the boss, la- boss lady gate has gone down in the annals of history as a real moment. And I can see they still parse everything through the lens of Boss Ladygate, and it's made my colleagues much more timid. So I, my challenge is now to like continue to make things as ridiculous as a Boss Lady pillow. And I hear so much pushback from all of my great, creative, smart operatives who are younger than me and who think that Boss Ladygate had some validity, which of course it didn't. I work with college students a lot, and I've had this conversation with them where they've said, "What was? how are things different when you were in college? And I say the number one thing was we often just laughed at stuff and had joy without torturing it politically. Even the same stuff that today we would torture. Poli- like back then, we literally wouldn't have thought that we just would have had fun. We were human. Yeah. And, and they have this moment. You can see the sort of looks pass over their eyes where at first they think, but, but how irresponsible of you. And then they think, that must have been amazing. You just got to enjoy it, you know? And I think the answer is don't hire anyone under 35. Yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> because I, like I think it. even these 25-year-olds will grow up. Life will teach them that you have to seize joy where you can. Yeah, but it's crazy. You cannot hire anyone under 35 because then how will they be in a creative environment where they will learn? They'll do DIY stuff in their basement until they're I, ready for a job. Right. My operatives are as good as it gets, and they're fantastic. I love the kids who work for me. They're so creative and great. But... They I love cannot, you call them operatives. Yeah. It's only well, you and the CIA who call them that, by the way. Yeah, yeah. kind of. That's great. Um, but the truth is they cannot help it. So Boss Lady Gate really is in their bones. And like Lionel Shriver calls it um, malicious misinterpretation when people drudge up things like that and maliciously misinterpret them. And I've told my kids that. And I've told them the idea of like even acknowledging cultural appropriation as a thing is like losing the battle but they can't help it. They actually think it's a thing. It's not. I mean, I will say that the Boss Lady pillow, I just went to order it, it is out of stock online. <laughs> well, because guess what? Here's, this the marketplace is a, wins, Well, bitches. this brings it back to drag and your stupid, like, women's studies major thing is, like, the people who are parsing these issues through that lens are very small in number. People love a Boss Lady pillow. Women love RuPaul's Drag Race. All the girls in my office are obsessed with it. They're not troubled by it. They don't find it problematic because they're real people who don't use the word problematic. <laughs> Amen. Okay, okay, to end us off, give us some Jewish drag artists. Like, who should we be following? We need to make everything Jewish, so. Well, we have to talk about Barbara, because first of all, she's the inspiration to so many drag queens. You know, that guy Jim Bailey used to impersonate her in the 60s. Do you remember him? He did Judy Garland, too. Can you tell me why? Oh, and and, and, and a follow-up question. Can you explain Barbara to me? Because I, I really don't, I don't get it There's two very straight men on this 
oh. podcast who just like shit on Barbara all the time. And I'm just like, you don't get it and you don't get how important she was. I'm ready to, to convert. To I truly of... am. Just, just to get away well, from the Barbara. Redeem me. Like, no, no, no. I mean, convert to... to a Barbara lover. I just oh, want to I'm understand. ready to become an Episcopalian to escape <laughs> Barbara to love. <laughs> just, just to not have to hear about Barbara. I'm going to host a Goyesha podcast. I think like when she was young in the 60s, she was completely unique, very f- groovy, unusual, blah, blah, blah. you got to give it up for 60s Barbara with that Siamese cat look and the hair. I mean, Jesus Christ. She was jolly led. And yeah. she took a lot of crap for being a prominent Jewish girl at that time. Like she had to deal with an immense amount of stuff. I don't know. I don't think about her very much. I'm not that person with 12,000 Barbara records. I did have a CD of Je m'appelle Barbara once because <laughs> I just j'adore Je m'appelle Barbara <laughs> where she warbles in French. Yeah, she's very accomplished. She's in my book because of Yentl where she she directed it. She's in it. She wrote it. She drags up in it, you know, like, uh, no, she's very accomplished. And it's easy to make fun of her because she is like a, an extreme camp figure. So yeah, and she's I would em- say enjoy Barbara. Don't diss Barbara. And understand that, like, she's emblematic of a mysterious force in gay culture, which is that gays are obsessed with women who are strange, like, you know, in her case, she's Jolie led. She's improbable. It's sort of a mystical, magical force that you can't even begin to try to understand intellectually. Just accept. But there also must be some kind okay. of outsiderness to her, right? Like the oh, idea. Yeah, that's God. part of it. Yes. We love a tragic diva. We can't help it. Although once in a while, you must meet a gay man who, who's like, "What? I don't know what you're talking about." You're talking to two of them who are like, "Oh, whatever." Yeah, we but don't we, have. But we under, we accept. You accept. It. You understand. Yeah. Yeah, I get the icons. We don't have ramparts of Judy Garland records <laughs> or anything like that, which is fine. You know, like that wasn't my jam. You know, right. like I was more into glam rock, Bowie, and stuff like that. But anyway, um, Sprat, you yeah, I want you. Well, next time I come, I want to hear you crooning "Je m'appelle Barbara." I promise you, I will go home today and I will download. I want you to buy the whatever buy the vinyl. Is. I'll buy the vinyl. Buy, buy the, the lady boss pillow. She's <laughs> also unbelievably funny. Like What's Up Doc is a great movie. The Owl and the Pussycat. Leo, oh do, do you and have I have seen to go those movies? No, she's a genius no, comedian. No, but I, I have seen her cloned dogs. That's pretty funny. That live in the underground lair with James Brolin and the street of shops in her basement. Yeah, right. I, this it's is a freaky my scene. That's this is my so brief funny. against her is that she's sort of abandoned her talent to become a weird people magazine back of the book page. But that's part of the whole thing. Again, you're not with two gays who embrace it, but we fully accept it. Interestingly, the kids in my office, Brittany is their Barbara. Time moves Britney on. Britney Spears. Huh. Yeah. The time camp is on. factor Good is actually, her. yeah, no, it's, I'm it's fascinating. She's, and she's entering the canon. Can I answer your question about the roiling, boiling turmoil of how do you blah, blah, blah that Definitely. you asked before? See, By the way, this is, like, this is how I know you're a Gentile because you've like waited, right. like <laughs> politely are asking if you could re- like reply to the question that got interrupted like 10 minutes ago. Such well, so a gent aisle. Yeah. <laughs> so the history is enormously reassuring. You look at history, you look at my book. You'll see that life was much worse in the past, and we're actually living in a utopia. But the media, Facebook, Twitter, does not support that idea that we're living in a utopia. You know, when I, I don't, I'm not on Facebook, I'm not on Twitter, neither's Johnny. When I walk down the street, get on the subway, go to the Bronx, go to Brooklyn, I don't see anything. Once in a while, you see some antisocial behavior. The rest of the time, I see people helping each other, being very nice to each other. So I think... It, 
A, you've got to know your history to really understand the times we live in and the brutality of horror of history. And then B, stay off that creep. Are you on Twitter? Nope. That's great. Wait, you shut down your account? No, but I never go on it. You have to join me in shutting down the account. So I guess we're not going to get the Jonathan Adler needlepoint internet famous, (laughs) (laughs) for all of us to share. Okay. But if you wanted to, you'd go to jonathanadler.com where you can find a cornucopia of Adlerian masterpieces. Please. And you could get- (laughs) Honestly, the stores are way, a much bigger pleasure. And since the stores don't carry it, you could get drag the complete story at an independent bookstore near you by yes, Simon Doonan. Uh, knowing that 100% of the author proceeds benefit the Aliforni Center in Harlem helping LGBTQ kids who are homeless. Amen. Inshallah. Jonathan, Simon, thank you guys for being here. I think you're our first official unorthodox couple of the week. Oh, shalom. Shalom. Of shalom every week. <laughs> and now, thank you so much. The only question that matters, huh. who has better hair? Um, What do you think I'm going to say? And as to that question that we left hanging about who has better hair, me or Liel, Jonathan did sort of stage whisper an answer after we cut off the mics, but we're not going to tell you. Maybe some of you have opinions. Uh, go take a look at me and Liel in our J-Press shirts and our, our coiffures, our hair hairstyles. Tell us what you think. Unorthodox at tabletmag.com or 914-570-4869. Unorthodox, the podcast that constantly needs your validation. Broadway comes to the 14th Street Y on Tuesday, May 21st. Join us at 7 p.m. for a conversation with cast members from Prayer for the French Republic, the Tony Award-nominated Best Play. Tony nominee Betsy Adam and fellow cast members Francis Benhamou, Ethan Haberfield, and Ari Brand will take part in a lively discussion moderated by the New York Times' Mark Tracy. They'll talk about the play's themes of Jewish identity, French culture, and Zionism in times of rising anti-Semitism. This event is part of 14Y's spring season of Jewish culture. As a Jewish community center, 14Y offers a variety of opportunities for people to discover, explore, and connect with Jewish life. Visit 14streetwide.org to learn more and purchase tickets to Broadway at 14Y. Hey, J.Crew, it is time for some pod biz. Tonight, May 16th, I will be moderating a Zoom conversation with Rabbi Sharon Brous and Shai Held about each of their new books. That's at 6 p.m. Eastern and the final event in my Unpacking the Book series with the Jewish Book Council and the Jewish Museum. This one's on Zoom, so no matter where you are, I hope you can make it. And tonight is actually a doubleheader for me. If you're in the New York area, I'll be at the Marlene Meyerson JCC Manhattan at 7.30 tonight in conversation with Israeli rapper and singer Jimbo J. He'll be performing and there will be delicious Israeli food from Chef Mushka, who made the famous Horosets at our Passover pop-up. You can find links to register for both of those events at tabletmag.com unorthodoxlive. We also have some great events coming up for Tablet members in person and on Zoom. On May 16th, Catherine Wolf will be in conversation with Jews who refuse to back down against hostile crowds in various arenas, from municipal buildings, school board meetings, and of course, college campuses. She'll be talking with Club Z's Masha Merkalova, Safe CUNY's Avraham Goldstein, Attorney John Kovac, Mel Waldorf, Steve Goldberg, and UNC Chapel Hill student Daniel Stumpel. 
Also coming up, a warm and intimate Zoom for those who have lost friendships since October 7th. That's on May 21st and will be a great chance to connect and meet new people. And on May 30th, an in-person tablet meetup in Washington, D.C., hosted by Tablet's executive editor Wayne Hoffman and Catherine Wolfe. That'll be at Charbar at 6 p.m. You can become a Tablet member at tabletm.ag uo member and get more information about all of these events. Okay, back to the show. Our next guest is Steve Shragus. He's the founder and director of One Day University, where Mark has taught a course. It brings interesting speakers to people across the country, and he tells us about that and his former run-ins with someone named Trump. Stephen Shragus genuinely has had such an interesting career that I really did want to talk to him and hear something about his professional journey, which includes uh, one Donald Trump over the years and also includes Spy Magazine and just a really, really interesting journey. So Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Absolutely. So before we go any further, tell our listeners quickly, if they don't know what One Day University is, what is it? We put on events. We identify the professor or professors at each of about 100 different schools that students say, this is a great professor. They could be a history professor, a science professor. Whatever that person who's so popular teaches, we contact that individual and ask them to do a one-hour lecture for a somewhat older audience on that subject. So it's a chance for older people who are out of college to go back to college for a we, day. We say day. you're going back to college for going a day, to... but there's no homework or exams. Okay, so you put on these events all over the country. Mm-hmm. I've, I've participated in some, and leaving me aside, it's the single best lecture that you've promoted to these audiences. It, it's very hard to say that because you're saying, who, who's your favorite child of all your children? There's one in particular called Hamilton versus Jefferson by Professor Lewis Mazur who's a history professor at Rutgers, who explains the thinking of both of them and how different they were, but how together they pretty much created what America is. He is just a brilliant speaker and professor. And in fact, PBS recently recorded. It's going to be a PBS special. What if I said pick three? Give me quickly two more. Two more awesome ones. Catherine Sanderson from Amherst uh-huh. teaches a class called The Science of Happiness, which is just fascinating scientifically looking at what does make people happy and what doesn't and how it's the same in almost every country. Just a brilliant lecture. And she's, she's wildly popular at Amherst. You can, these professors, you haven't heard of them off their campus, but on campus. They are walk, rock stars. Walking around with right. them is like walking around with Mick Jagger. Right. The last one, I would probably say Catherine Winterer from Stanford has a class, a re- new class now called What Historians Don't Know. Stonehenge is one of them. Yeah. But there's eight or nine more. We just don't know what happened. Just things we and, haven't been able to solve. And all the different theories and how we get to them, like what did George Washington actually sound like? Things like that. Right. And But you can do research into this. Right. You just can't be sure. And I never heard anything like that before. Oh, that sounds cool. And it was fun. You are sort of someone who professionalizes the amateur impulse, right? I mean, if you go back to... I would argue this even applies to your work. You were one of the investors in Spy Magazine, the satirical magazine in the Mm -hmm. 80s, where Graydon Carter, who went on to edit Vanity Fair, had one of his early jobs, Kurt Anderson, the the novelist and now public radio host. And that was taking a sort of highbrow art, satirical or comedic sensibility and putting it in this magazine that was selling on newsstands everywhere. Mm -hmm. Then you went to the Learning Annex, Mm -hmm. where you ended up one of the top executives, right? And that was also, well, I mean, in some ways, you know, before you could go on 
YouTube and learn how to cut hair. Like the learning annex was basically how you got an amateur education if you couldn't enroll in school, right? Absolutely. I see. Okay. So what was the learning annex? It was a group that created lectures with this theory. What better way to learn than from an actual practitioner? You want to open a coffee shop, learn from someone who's opened five coffee shops. If learning addicts were around today, how do you start a podcast? Find people who've started podcasts and let them teach you. So there was no internet then. Right. We'd bring together these people who wanted to learn, not, not a whole course, not a degree, but a three or four hour seminar. And you bring people who are practitioners and like the idea of being a teacher. So you'd find a coffee shop owner and say, hey, do you want to give a class in coffee shop owning? Yeah. And you'd find a, a, a hall for them to lecture in, and then yeah. you'd sell and, the course through they, these catalogs. They always say yes. They always say. Right. Did you pay them? They got a percentage of the income. The real movers and shakers got a guaranteed payment. We, we offered Donald Trump a $500 guaranteed payment, thinking that was a big deal. Did he say yes? He immediately said yes, and this was the very first time. Right. He said, you don't have to pay me anything, but I want a certain amount of guaranteed promotion. Huh. No one had ever said that to me in years. I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, and I don't like to talk about the affiliation that much. But I will say I never saw promotion at that level until I met him. Give us a taste here. So you're working for the Learning Annex. This is the mid, early, mid-aughts, 2004, 2005. Mm -hmm. You decide you want to do a course or another course in real estate investing. Mm -hmm. He's a big name in it already. Did you approach him? Did he approach you? Did no, no, we approached him. We had a course called How to Make Money in Real Estate. Generally, you would hire developers. There are a lot of them. And it was getting more, it was always a popular course, but it was really getting popular. So we approached this developer named Donald Trump. This was a little before The Apprentice. Right. That came out while he was doing this. He was known. This Author, was the, in This air was quotes. the big leagues. Right. But this was not what it later became. Right. It wasn't The Apprentice. Right. And he wasn't that hard to get to. And, and he said, yes, but I want to make sure if we do it, we do it big. No one had ever said that before. And so did he work with your marketing people and tell them here's how to do it? Or did he just say, do it right? No, he, he you know, we had a magazine and he wanted to be in the cover three times. He wanted certain promotion, a banner at the Lincoln Tunnel. He was basically saying, you don't, I don't need money. I, I want Publicity. to be exposed. Yeah. And he was. We had no idea how big it could be. I mean, I will tell you, at that time... A large class was maybe 50 people, but we were thinking big. We could get 500 people for Mr. Trump, but we didn't. We got 31,000 people. For one class or over yes. a series of? No, for a three-hour presentation, ended up at the Javits Center. 31,000 people? What were they each paying? 69, 89, something like that. So this was like half your profit for the year at the learning. I mean, it was it was huge. It was a, never saw anything like it. Did he ever do it again? He did it maybe a dozen times. Always that big? Bigger after a while. I left after the second one. I didn't want to do it anymore. But it went on and it became a very big deal. Was this class good? It was motivational. It was called Think Big. Uh-huh. How can you succeed? You got to think you're going to succeed. You have to think you can do these things. And you will, like me. Was he a good speaker? Yes. He was a very good speaker. But that message is kind of horseshit, right? I mean, you've been in real estate. You've made money in real estate. <laughs> Just believing you can do it ain't It's ain't a good much. first step. <laughs> um, it depends who you're talking to. Mark, if you said, I really want to be a real estate developer, maybe you could succeed. Probably you could succeed. And the way money was lent then and no re recourse loans, you could make it happen. Right. A lot of people did. But if, but if the you're level of the people who came was different than we had ever seen before, too. 
without going into too many details, these were not people who were going to become rich in real estate. These were real schlemiels. These people, you felt bad taking their $69 because they couldn't really afford it. Is that part of why you left? Yes. So what did you do after that? I started Wendell University. I left Learning Annex in 2005, and then I started. I had the idea for Wendell University while I was at Learning Annex. And then I left to start it in 2006. So you've been doing this now for almost 14 years mm -hmm. at One Day University. Mm -hmm. You've worked with hundreds of professors. Mm -hmm. um, as I said, you've probably seen as many different university lectures as possibly anyone yes. in the world. It's a really interesting Maybe. perch. Maybe. These are people who write books. And I say this as someone who's been to graduate school and who, who mm -hmm. wrote an academic book that I mm -hmm. don't go back and reread, to put it mildly. These are people who write books that are often pretty difficult even for very bright people to absorb. Sometimes they write very clearly and beautifully, but academic learning tends to exist on this plane that often really almost resists having a popular audience, is often hostile to the average or lay reader. Well, luckily, yeah. we're not bogged down by all the criteria that Yale University would be. So for instance, your description is relatively accurate, but there's always one or two exceptions out of a thousand people, and that's who we find. You did this. It took off. You've been in lots of cities. As you've said, your audiences are disproportionately Jewish. You yourself, a proud member of Rodef Shalom on the Upper West Side. You say you go to Omaha and 15%, you know, it's a town, it's an area that might be 1% Jewish mm. and your audiences at one day university are 50% Jewish. On the Upper West Side, you might think your audience would be 40% Jewish. It's 85%. Whatever the, the percentage in the area is, your audiences, the people who will pay a few shekels to see a professor talk intellectual mm -hmm. stuff are more Jewish than the surrounding population. Mm -hmm. What's up with the Jews? Here's what I think is up with the Jews. I'm actually pretty sure of this. Okay. The underlying concept we have is you're going to have fun and learn for the sake of learning. Nobody's getting a degree. No one's passing a test. No one's going to get a, a better job because they learned about Abraham Lincoln through a Mar history professor. The idea that learning is a good thing, you can always learn more. Learning from a top professor is a privilege is a very, very Jewish concept. I'm sure it's all over the Talmud. And that wasn't the goal, but we tapped into that. Not every Jewish person comes to our events, right. obviously. <laughs> if only, but, right. But, no, if only, but none of them say, what a silly idea. None of them would say, why would anyone want to do that? Amen, Selah. Stephen Tragus, thank you for being our Jew of the Week. As our longtime listeners know, one of our favorite guests, especially one of my favorite guests, is Molly Ye. Uh, she's been on the show numerous times. She is our uh, TV star in residence, and she sat down with Stephanie to talk about her new Food Network special. She's also the host of Girl Meets Farm on the Food Network, and she runs the super scrumptious blog. And I mean scrumptious, like if you look at it, the photographs are beautiful, and then the recipes are also delicious. It's called My Name is Ye, Y-E-H. Here she is talking with Stephanie. I am excited to be on the phone with Molly Ye. She is a cookbook author, Food Network star, and most importantly, friend of the pod. She's going to tell us all about her upcoming Food Network special, The Ultimate Hanukkah Challenge. Hi, Molly. Hi, Stephanie. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm so good. I am working my way through unorthodox. Okay, so I have to tell you, the only bad thing about having a baby is that I am now 
three months behind on my unorthodox episode. So I just finished up Adina Sussman's episode. I'm still working out this whole like backing into a parking spot thing. <laughs> um, I'm sure you've settled it by now, but that's where I'm at. I feel like I'm in a time machine though, because now I'm like jumping ahead to a new episode. To be honest, it says be fruitful and multiply, but also still listen to unorthodox. So I just want to make sure you're oh, following oh, oh, all your oops. commandments. Okay, I didn't get that part. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the beginning part is like the more famous one, but that's like the, the, the fine print. But um, I'm very happy to hear that everything is going so well with you and and little Bernie. She is wearing her unorthodox onesie today with a juicy tracksuit over it. FYI, I'll send you pictures. I feel like she is really living her best life and I'm really happy to hear that. She's really squishy. <laughs> so you have an exciting special coming up on the Food Network. Can you tell us about it? I'm so excited about it. It's the ultimate Hanukkah challenge. And I feel like I've had this on my mind for so long now and I can't believe it's actually happening. It's a cooking challenge and it's all about Hanukkah and I don't know I just when I was getting ready for it I just had this moment where I started to tear up and the producers Ben and Josh they're also the producers of Girl Meets Farm and they're like they remind me of every boy that I went to summer camp with so I just feel like we all got kind of emotional about this we were just so excited we were kind of like score one for the Jews and, and I had this moment sitting in, in hair and makeup getting ready where I had Sufganyot nail decals and dreidel nail decals. And, and there were these Star of David hairpins, gold sparkly hairpins in my hair. And I was reading through the final script and I just couldn't believe that it was happening because there are so many Christmas shows and Christmas specials and, uh, you know, Santa's cooking challenge and ultimate holiday baking championship, which is all sorts of Christmas sweets. And this is the first time I think that a Hanukkah show has been on the Food Network. So I'm just really excited and also emotional about it. No, that's amazing. And we're so happy that you are part of bringing that about. Will you tell us what the, the concept of the show is? Like, what is everyone cooking? Is it latkes? Like, what, what, do, what are we going to watch? Okay, I have to be careful and not give away any spoilers. But there is, so there's a latke round. There is a brisket round. And then there's a sufganyot round. And... The four contestants were all incredible. They were all so different in their backgrounds, both as cooks, in their backgrounds, in their relationship to Jewish cuisine and Judaism. And they were all such characters. It was so cool to see them cook. And, you know, there was there was one cook who was a home cook who was, I feel like, a Bubby's boy from New York. And there was a trained chef from a really famous restaurant in LA who was not Jewish. There's a woman from Washington, D.C. who converted to Judaism, also a trained chef. And then there was a woman from L.A. who has competed on a lot of these shows before. And so they all had completely different perspectives on the cuisine. And it sparked a lot of debate between the other judges and me. So the other judges are Duff Goldman and then Sharon Hackman. And I got to host and judge. And at one point, somebody made this dish using it was in the brisket round and it was ketchup and brown sugar do you do you know that style of brisket what I'm talking about I am not familiar Wait, but I'm really? intrigued okay I feel like it brought back so many memories for me because it just it was this nostalgic kind of flavor it was it's just so I don't know it Duff and Sharon didn't understand it either but to me it just it screamed 
holidays and brisket and um, all of my older family members. That was just a thing that they did. It's funny because I, this reminds me of a tweet that someone tweeted in September, which is basically, she says, every Jewish American family recipe yes, seems like a precious heirloom from the old country. And then you finally get your hands on the recipe and it's like mixed diet black cherry soda with French dressing and cook the chicken in it for six hours. Yep. That's exactly what this situation was. And it made me so nostalgic. Yeah, that's what it was. But then there was these trained chefs who were also doing these delicious things. And so, you know, comparing these different dishes, you know, do you, which wins? Nostalgia or chefiness or looks or, you know, what? There, there were so many different things to consider when, when judging the dishes. This sounds stressful. Was this like something that was emotionally taxing for you? Because this is like the Jewish Olympics, right? It's latkes, brisket and sufgani oat. You've got a lot like the Jewish future is on your shoulders. I can only imagine the bragging rights for whoever won. I, I can't even go there because I can't, you know, run the risk of blurting out who won. But there there was a huge plot twist. There Ooh. was a miracle. Yeah. Even, even, you know, the judge, like, we didn't foresee this happening. There were actually, I would say there were two huge plot twists. Um, and there was a moment where we were all called into the control room and it was pretty heated. And I got really nervous and I was sweating bullets. They had to keep powdering my face. Uh, so it's, I would say it's not like a typical cooking challenge. Things happen that we did not foresee happening multiple times. So I think it's going to be really exciting. So as our listeners watch the show, how can they get out of their own, you know, like same latke recipe, same jelly donut? Like what can they be making to sort of spice things up this Hanukkah? Well, I think that latkes and sufganyot are two really awesome sort of baseline recipes that can be easily jazzed up. So I feel like every year I want to make a different kind of latke and different kind of sufganyot because obviously by the eighth night, we're just sick of the classic sour cream and applesauce. So, I mean, anything goes well with crispy, salty fried potatoes, even sweet things. I'll do a scoop of ice cream on my latkes as a sort of nod to the whole Wendy's French fry in the frosty thing. Um, and with sufganyot, I really love a savory sufganyot. So I'll do, instead of, you know, your typical sweet jelly, I'll do um, a savory onion jam or tomato jam. And then instead of dusting it with powdered sugar, you can dust it with that cheese powder that comes in the macaroni and cheese box. There are so many different things that you can do because it's just, it's fried dough, which is pretty adaptable to whatever flavors you want to add, any fillings. And then the same thing with latkes. It's, it's, it's a great sort of base for whatever you want to add. This sounds amazing. We are like just past Thanksgiving, but I'm already ready for Hanukkah. And I'm really excited to get to chat with you, Molly. Thanks, Stephanie. Unorthodox listeners can watch the Ultimate Hanukkah Challenge when it premieres Saturday, December 21st at 9, 8 central on the Food Network. Happy Hanukkah. Thank you so much. Before I hop my plane to Madison, Wisconsin, and thence to San Diego, and thence to Phoenix, I want to hear some Mazel Tovs. Liel, do you have a Mazel Tov this week? I have so many Mazel Tovs. Um, you know, first of all, Mazel Tov really, I think I said this at one of our live shows a couple of weeks ago, but it continues to be relevant. To the people in Iran who are really bravely, amazingly standing up for freedom uh, and, and fighting their tyrannical regime, you should know that the J Crew is always behind you. And speaking of uh, ecumenical interfaith love, a couple of weeks ago, we were on 
our beloved sister podcast, Jesuitical. Yeah, you guys uh, should listen to that episode. It was really fun. Which, which it is was really good. Amazing. I should say I wasn't on it, so I listened to it just to hang out with Liel and Stephanie late at night on my sofa. It's such an amazing experience, and we love these guys so much. And last night, I am on my couch, as I am found most evenings, <laughs> watching The Irishman, the, the new Martin Scorsese masterpiece on Netflix. And who plays the role of the priest than uh, former unorthodox guest and beloved Jesuit uh, master, Father James Martin. Honestly, he's in it for a few short scenes, but just for that, forget De Niro, forget Pacino. It's a Jim Martin movie, and you should watch it. Mazel tov, Father I Martin. I like the idea of a Jesuit master. It's like a Jedi master. No, that's exactly what he is. It's like a Jedi master, but like with better clothes. <laughs> and less sex. With better collars. And, and more power. More force. More power, okay. less sex, better collars. I have a two-pronged mazel tov to one of my really good friends, Sam Bloom. She not only has a birthday coming up, which is while we are traveling, but her film production company is also behind the kind of insane new film, The Report, which is the Adam Driver movie about the CIA torture memo. And it's really, really, really nuts. And Annette Benning plays Diane Feinstein. And it's just a great movie. And I'm just really proud of her. And that's it. That's my mazel tov. One friend, two prongs, one mazel tov. I have a mazel tov. It's I-91 based. It's New Haven based. Before I give this mazel tov, I want to say, as I prepare to head to Madison and San Diego, those are two places where I have I have just no peoples at all. So uh, what are you going to say go- at the show if you can't tell I mean, them? Exactly. Yeah. You guys are always taunting me because wherever we go, Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, New York, like I always say, I have people, Mobile, Alabama, Lake Charles, Louisiana, I got people and I have no people in, I mean, my, my, my friends, the Koplovichs from, but I haven't seen Mark in 20 years, uh, I live in Madison, but besides that, I have no people in Madison and I literally have zero people in San Diego. What about like, Phoenix? I, don't think, I feel like you might have th- people in Phoenix. Phoenix, I have Jordy Oland. Uh, Loomis Chafee, class of 91, now one of Phoenix's leading obstetricians. I think he's coming to the show. His parents once came to see us at the JCC in New York. So Phoenix, I've got. But San Diego, for a major American city and a super desirable one at that, I don't think I have a soul in San Diego County. Maybe I'm forgetting somebody. But, you know, if you know me and you live in San Diego and you've been surreptitiously listening to the show, getting a little dose of oppie now and again, but, but staying under the radar screen, not writing in, not calling the listener line... Please show up at the hive. Please show show, show Mark yourself. some love. Also, if you're like a long lost relative that Mark might not know about, definitely yeah. also show up. Like if you were one of my grandfather's five wives whom I didn't know or related to them, please, please. So I just want to say that that San Diego, beautiful place. I've been there before, beautiful place, but I got I have nobody. And uh so I really need I need some friends to show up there. Now, for my Mazel Tov. Uh, the New Haven, I'm just going to read this. This is an item from newhavenindependent.org. My friend uh, Paul Bass's great hyperlocal independent nonprofit news source. Headline, chocolate milk back in school for now. Chocolate milk banned for the last decade is making a return to the ice boxes of New Haven's high school cafeterias twice a week. That reversal, which will make chocolate milk available on a limited basis for a six-month pilot, was narrowly approved at Monday night's Board of Education meeting. The 4-3 vote came after a wide-ranging discussion that's being echoed in school districts across the country about who's ultimately responsible for the children's nutritional health, the kids who eventually need to decide for themselves or the adults who already know better. So there you have it. I am a big proponent of sweets for children. Uh, My children are actually drinking soda right now on the school bus as we tape. I sent them off with their their morning six-pack of Coca-Cola. 
And my God, chocolate milk. Yes. If you want kids to drink milk, throw a little chocolate in it. That will do the trick. Game over. Problem my solved. My favorite thing about this, about this piece is that they called it an ice box. Yeah. Yeah. That's Chris. That's it's Chris not in Pete. the fridge, you know, it's, right. it's in the ice box where the milkman delivers just, it every morning. I really do remember those little tiny cartons of, of chocolate milk and they were just like Absolutely. the best. It's an American rite of passage. Like go to public school, get the government milk and it's those little boxes of chocolate milk. And you know what? That's that's being American. Maybe in Switzerland, they're drinking like home cold pasteurized from your grandma's cow. In Switzerland, they have they milk. have a cold brew fondue yeah. in school. But you know what? We're Americans. Those yeah. little box of chocolate milk are where it's at. Chris Peak, deploying the word icebox, newhavenindependent.org. That's my mazel tov. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Send your thoughts to unorthodox at tabletmag.com and subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly slash unorthodoxpodcast. Listen, if anything in this podcast episode troubled you or elated you or just made you think, why not call and leave a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. We often come to you live to, to book us or advertise with us. Get in touch with producer Josh Cross. That's J-K-R-O-S-S at tabletmag.com. If you want to wear unorthodox shirts or t-shirts or sweatshirts or onesies or hats or mittens or beer cozies, go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt. That's where you can find unorthodox swag. You can follow us on Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod or on Instagram at unorthodox podcast. Join our Facebook group. There's lots of fun stuff there. Our show is produced by Josh Cross. Our associate producers are Sarah Fredman Ader and Ilana Levinson. So good to have Ilana on board. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our social media mashkiach is Elazar Abrams. Our theme music is by Golem, online at golemrocks.com. Rabbinic supervision this week by two of San Diego's finest rabbis, Rabbi David Castiglione of Adat Shalom and Rabbi Sammy Said of Ner Tamid. They are both serving the spiritual needs of the people in San Diego's North County, and we hope to see them and all of their congregants at our events at the Leashtag Foundation this Friday and Saturday. We come to you from Argo Studios, but soon from sunny, sunny San Diego and Phoenix. Shalom, friends. <laughs> <laughs>